Good evening to all of you. Grateful to see you here. I don't know where all of you have come from yet. I still haven't met some of you, but I'm glad that you're here. Glad that we have this opportunity to spend um, some hours together in God's Word. I think over the course of the weekend, I'll share four times. So um, I feel privileged to have that opportunity to um, share some of the insights and inspirations from Scripture that have motivated my missionary life um, over the last number of years. Some of you know me very well. This is one of our supporting churches, so some of you are very close to our family, and then there's people here who probably don't know who I am. So I'm going to just excuse me if you know me well. I'm just going to give a, a tiny uh, sketch of who, who I am or where I'm coming from in case you're a totally new face here and, and uh, don't know me. My name is Daniel Keniston. <clears throat> my family and I have been missionaries, uh, my wife Christy, and uh, we have four children. We've been missionaries in Ghana for uh, almost 25 years, 24 years now, and uh, been working in the northern part of Ghana among uh, one of the least reached tribes in Ghana when we moved there. Um, so we've raised our family there. My youngest is 13 years old. My oldest is 23. So we've raised our family there. Our children are pretty African, though they've uh, obviously they, they uh, are American by passport, but they're working on that too. They would like to get Ghanaian passports. But we're um, really blessed as a family to have had the opportunity to live in the village for about uh, 11 years. We lived out in a sort of a mud hut, grass roof setting, uh, preaching to a tribe where there were no churches and starting churches in those villages. And then um, we've had a, a continued role in leadership training with those believers, but uh, we've moved back away from the village to the city of Tomale, where we've lived now since 2009. So that's about 13 years we've been living in the city. We live in the city to be able to coordinate Sent One and Sent Two, which are youth missions training programs. I have a number of alumni here um, and be happy to answer questions about that. There are some brochures back there on the table about Sent One and Sent Two. So my wife and I kind of spend our entire lives discipling Sent One students, uh, leaders from our churches in the villages, teaching in our Bible school there in Tomale. Um, we have a large family that lives with us, uh, Ghanaian children who live with us and go to school in Tamale. So we just kind of have the opportunity to disciple everywhere we turn, and uh, that's a great privilege um, for us. So that's my family. They're not here with me. Uh, everywhere I go, people say, where's your wife, Christy? Uh, those things make me realize I am the lesser of the half, you know? <laughs> People say, my better half. I say, I really feel that everywhere I go. People are like, where's Christy? So the, my family is not here. Um, we're in the middle of a usually two or three year term in Ghana, but I flew back to preach in another missions conference in Pennsylvania and then a church in Maine. And I'm here this weekend and then, Lord willing, on Monday, um, fly back to Ghana. So this is just sort of a, a little slice. That makes it a little bit more challenging for me because... I've been teaching Bible school every day in Africa, and now I suddenly find myself here. And while I look like an American, I, my experience is almost entirely African. So it is not an easy thing 
May God have grace on me and on you. Um, if I mispronounce words or um, feel in any way awkward. On the flip side, the positive is that I'm able to share with you fresh stories and examples, things which are a part of my daily life as a missionary. And that's what I want to do. <clears throat> I want to start off with just um, a, kind of a, a bit of a preamble before we get into the Word of God. Um, those of you who are connected to the Muslim world are aware that we are, depending on which type of Muslim you are, we just finished day two or day three of the, the month of fasting, which is referred to as the Ramadan. And again, some of you here have lots of interaction with Muslims, but there are probably people here who have never in their life shook the hand of a Muslim individual. It's not unusual for me to get people who come on Sent One who have never interacted face-to-face -face in a friendly way, shook hands, or known anyone that's a Muslim. Some of us obviously have a very different life experience. Sometimes it depends on where you live. It also depends on how much you reach out. I promise you, if you develop a burden for the Muslim people, you will find that they are everywhere. They are here. They are everywhere. Um, when we were on our last trip here as a family, which was last year, our family left Wyoming right around this date a year ago. When we left here, we traveled back to the east, and we needed to stop for a, a, a motel, I think, in Illinois somewhere. And when we pulled into this hotel, there were no rooms. They said, we don't have any rooms. And I said, well, every hotel in this town is full. I said, what is going on? And they said, Tyson Chicken has rented all the hotels in the whole entire town. And so I kind of begged, and they said, okay, we can get you one room. So my family and I, we all slept in one room. And we were trying to understand why would all the hotel rooms be filled. And then that evening, all of these Afghan refugee men started coming home from the Tyson slaughterhouse. And that motel was just absolutely jammed. Four men to a room, every room full of Afghan refugees who are welcomed into the States when America pulled out of Afghanistan, and they can work it for Tyson Foods, and there they are. And that was in the middle of rural Illinois. Everywhere. They are everywhere. Anyway, I don't, won't go down that story. Lots of things I could share there. But this is the beginning of the, the Muslim month of fasting. During the month of fasting, Muslims fast from sundown to sunup. So they are allowed to, from sunup to sundown, they're fasting. From sundown to sunup, they're allowed to eat and drink. It's a little, little bit different concept of fasting than what we're used to. Incidentally, most of our African believers fast the same way that the Muslims fast. When they say they're fasting, they usually eat at night. They just don't eat during the day. And then when they say they're fasting, they fast like Muslims in that they don't drink water. I don't have a problem getting up at four in the morning and eating and working all day. I have a problem living at 105 degrees in Africa without drinking any water. That's hard. So they're in the Muslim fasting month, which means people get up very early to cook and eat, and then all day long, no eating, no drinking until after sunset, and then they're allowed to eat and drink again. It's a very unique period. It's referred to as a month of fasting, but it's also a month of feasting, and they stay up late at night eating. So it's a very unique period in their history. What I want to highlight for you is that the Muslim month of fasting, all of their prayers are at an increased, um, they're both an increased intensity and increased um, number of prayers 
and Muslims who are not good Muslims will come home and sort of have a revival and fast for the month of Ramadan. And then they might go away from God, so to speak. They may not practice their faith. They may not do five times a day of prayers. But during the month of Ramadan, they come home, sort of have a personal revival, a little bit like Catholic Lent, if you know anything about that in the, the Catholic setting. Many non-practicing uh, Catholics will come home to their church for Lent. So in Islam, the month of Ramadan is a month of intense um, prayers, the, the normal repetitions that they go through where they, they kneel down and bow and stand up and all of those things that they're doing are multiplied. Instead of seven cycles, it's 17 cycles. And so there's this increased number of prayers that are being prayed. I realize, again, that some of you are very familiar with this and some of you have never heard any of this information, and that's okay. We all learn together. I want us to get somewhere together, though, as a group, and that is to understand that in Islam, all of these prayers that they are praying are being prayed to a God, Allah, being prayed to their God, who absolutely, they are taught, cannot relate to human beings does not want to relate to human beings, can never relate to human beings. And so all of those prayers that you're observing or that I'm observing because I live in a Muslim city, all of those prayers are being prayed in the direction of Mecca, which is their holy city in Saudi Arabia, and they're being prayed towards a holy place where... Uh, the special prayers occur and where they pray towards a God who absolutely refuses to get close to them. Muslim imams or pastors strongly preach that God can never be related to anyone. That's one of the reasons why it is so such a strong point that, that the, God could never have a son because that would imply that God is related to someone. There cannot be a relationship between Allah and his people. No matter how sincerely they pray, no matter how many repetitions they go through, they're always at a great distance from God. I mentioned to you that my family, ha we have a bunch of um, children, African children who live with us. We refer to them as our chocolate family. And uh, that family is much larger than my family. I only have four children and there are about uh, 16 or so of the, the chocolate family. So. We refer to them with that term. They like that term. It's a term of endearment. They refer to themselves as the chocolate children. In my family are all of these students who've come to live from villages. Some of them don't have parents. Some of them have parents. They've come to live with, with my family. And when they come to live with my family, I have watched a process occur whereby they are trying to figure out how close they can get to this man who in Africa is called Mr. Daniel. And so these people come into my home, and they're welcome to live in my family. We eat together. We, we, we're all sharing the same water, the same food, the same property. And they live there with me. And for a couple of months, they call me Mr. Daniel. But as they're calling me Mr. Daniel, they're watching that the rest of the family, both black and white, refers to me as Papa. That's my, that's my term of endearment as a father. And I watch these new children come in, and then one day... As they're trying to find their way in this relationship, I will notice them kind of look around and say, Papa, sort of tentatively, sort of a little unsure of themselves, sort of 
not quite sure if they've reached the level to call me Papa, but it works, you know, Papa, yes. And it's like, oh, wow, another one of my students just became part of my family. And from then on, I'm never Mr. Daniel again. I'm Papa. And so I have about 50 children that over the years have lived in my home and called me Papa. And it's a term of endearment, but I'm, I'm representing the, the, I'm using it to represent the fact that I desire that relationship with them. And I'm thrilled when they tentatively at first and, and then with a little more confidence call me Papa. But in Islam, there is never a time, no matter how many times you bow, no matter how many days you fast, no matter how many meals you give to the poor, which is very important in Islam, there is never a point at which a Muslim can look up to their God and say, Papa, Imagine if those chocolate children who live in my home and call me Papa, imagine that after two or three months, they, they finally got up the nerve to say, Papa, and what if in that moment I would say to them, excuse me, I'm not your father, okay? I will feed you. I will send you to school. I will let you stay in my house. Don't call me Papa. Don't touch me. Don't expect a hug from me. I'm not your father. Can you imagine how painful that would be to be held at arm's length? In Islam, Allah is often referred to as the great benefactor. Well, a benefactor is a wonderful thing. Some of us wish we had had a benefactor who could have paid for our schooling or funded a new car for us or given us an interest-free loan. A benefactor can be a wonderful thing, but a benefactor is never the same as a father. And a benefactor is someone who may or may not be close to you, but simply chooses to give you from their wealth to sponsor your life. So Muslims often refer to Allah as a benefactor, but a benefactor is not the same as a father. Imagine the pain if in that moment I would push them away and say, I'm not your father. Do you look like me? Look at your color and my color. I'm not your father. My children call me Papa. You call me Mr. Daniel. That would be this sort of distance between me and those children that I've chosen to love and who love me. I wish that as I share these things, something in your heart would say, wow, that is not what we have in Christ Jesus. We are told that he has put into us a spirit of adoption. Okay, these chocolate members come into my family. I do my absolute best to put off or to give off to them a spirit of adoption, which says, you are part. When they have birthdays, we celebrate with birthday cakes. When I have meat, they eat meat. When there's something special going on in my family, there's something special going on for them. When I buy gifts from my, for my children when I'm in America, I buy gifts for them. I am just trying to exude a spirit of adoption. They respond to that spirit of, of adoption by saying, Papa. And the Bible says that he has given us a spirit of adoption whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father. 
maybe tentatively at first, maybe a little unsure of our relationship, not sure how he could possibly love me. But over time, if we follow and grow in grace, we will get to a place where we can obey the biblical injunction which says we should come boldly to the throne of grace, not timidly, Papa. No, you come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy. I think it's important for us to acknowledge the spiritual reality of almost 2 billion people. And that's why I'm mentioning that to you. One, so that you'll have a burden to pray for them. It would be a very good thing if Christians all around the world would take the month of Ramadan as a special prayer and fasting month for Muslims. I actually know uh, several believers in, in my you know, interactions that have mentioned that they fast alongside of the Muslims, obviously not fasting for Allah, but fasting and praying for the Muslim peoples of the world because two billion people is a huge number of people reaching out, reaching towards what they know, reaching towards their creator, but being constantly met by a religion and a God and a scriptures, the Quran, which tells them, you can't get any closer than this. You are sinful. And the answer for your sin is to bow. And so they are asked to bow and kneel and bow and kneel. The worship for the sin problem of man in Islam is for you to bow. The answer for the sin problem in the Bible is that Christ came down and purchased us back into a right relationship with God and he has allowed us to become his junior brothers. He died so that we could become his Younger siblings, sorry, junior brothers, that's a Ghanaian expression for you. He died so that we could become the younger siblings, the younger brothers of the Lord Jesus. I've had people ask me before, are your children jealous of all these African children who also call you Papa and eat from your table and get gifts from you? I haven't seen that. But look at the example of Jesus. Far from being jealous, he said to his father, I will die so that my younger brothers and sisters can also come into the family. And what does Jesus say? This is not our message yet, okay? What does Jesus say? He says, oh, Father, I just want them to be able to see and experience what I used to have with you, that perfect union that mystery called the Trinity. I want my younger brothers and sisters to come into that kind of a relationship. You have no idea how blessed you are to belong to the faith, to a faith, to the Christian faith, to have the word of God, to have Jesus as the one who died to bring us back into right relationship with God. I said this the other day when I was preaching and people kind of looked at me strange and I thought, okay, maybe that's the wrong way to say it. I said, I, I wish that all of you could become Muslims for one week. And obviously, I don't want you to give up your Christian faith. I don't mean it that way. But how, could, how can I somehow communicate to you what it must be like to live in an orphanage where no one will ever allow you to call them Papa? That's Islam. I'm the benefactor of the orphanage. I feed the children. I give them gifts on their birthdays. I give them clothes. But no child may ever 
give me a hug. That would be going way too far. Know your place. You are orphans, and I am a benefactor, and I choose to feed you and buy you clothes. Don't call me dad. I'm not your dad. Can you imagine being kept in a permanent orphanage state like that? If you've ever been to an orphanage, have you ever reached out to hurting children? It doesn't take long at all before those children will say, can I call you dad? Could you be my big sister? Could you be my uncle? They reach out with a desire to have some kind of familial connection, right? Well, in Islam, stay over there. You can't come to me. I'm God, and you're sinful. Bow. Your right response is to bow, and that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I've got a dual purpose here as I'm sharing this. This is mission. So for some of you, this might be a, a new glimpse of Islam. For all of us, it should be something that makes us say, what do we have in Christ? Those who were once far away have been brought nigh. God came down to this earth in the form of Jesus, right? Do you agree on that? God came to this earth in the form of Jesus. When he was here on this earth, his disciples tried to keep dusty, dirty children away from him because they thought, well, probably he's a little bit like the scribes and Pharisees and they're trying to stay clean and they don't want to be troubled with the children. What did Jesus say? Let the little children come. If you, don't, if you need a confirmation that God desires that kind of connection with us, just look at that story. Let the little children come. I know their feet are dirty. I know that they don't know respect. One of these little children is going to grab Jesus by the beard and pull his face around. Have you ever held a little child? They love beards. They just grab and just... And his disciples are looking on and thinking, oh, my, this is the master. He said, allow the little children. Don't forbid them. I'm happy to hold these children. I'm happy to get dusty and dirty from holding these children. I want this connection. That's your God. And he says to you, bring your dirty, dusty feet, because we're not perfect. He says to you, please don't stay out there at a distance and say, master, master. No, no, no. Come sit here, right here. I desire that relationship with you. In fact, he died so that that relationship could be there. I wish that we could, we could appreciate what we have. We could dwell on it. Our hearts could become so full of joy that we would want to go out and share that wonder of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ with a world that doesn't know it. And especially with the Muslim world who is told exactly the opposite. They are told that they are following their creator. They are told that they are worshiping the God of Abraham. They are told that God wants nothing to do with them relationally. Just bow. Oh, what we have in Jesus Christ is wonderful. Amen? That's our preamble tonight. We want to turn to 2 Corinthians. Do you know if there's a mosque in Cheyenne? There's a mosque in Cheyenne. One. At least one. 
if you live here or if you live in Missouri or if you live in Iowa, and I don't know all the others, I think Utah, somebody said, wherever you live, ask God, please bring Muslim people across my path. I need to shake hands with them. I need to have them to my home for a meal. I need to interact with them. Please let me be the light of Christ in their life. Something like 96% of the Muslims alive today cannot count a single Christian friend in their world. We say, well, I can't change that for those who live in Afghanistan. No, you probably can't get into Afghanistan right now. But those Afghan people are in your country now. Everywhere. God, I want to change that statistic. I want to be a friend. God will do amazing things to bring them across your path. I have friends who live just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and they were praying as a family, asking God to send them. They were praying for God to send them. They thought God was going to send them on the mission field, and God wasn't sending them. And then one day in their prayers, God laid Syria upon their heart. They were just praying, like, Syria. They're like, God's going to send us to Syria. They started praying for Syria. They got some uh, gospel tracts and some New Testaments in the language. They started saying, God, are you sending us? They started language study. Are we going to go to Syria? Why would God lay Syria on our heart? And then God didn't send them to Syria, and they kind of went through this period of disillusion, like, God, why did you say Syria? You're not sending us to Syria. We're stuck in Atlanta, Georgia. But you know that that God who looks for people and wants to bring people into contact with his children, he breaks those connections. One day they were in their home, and they noticed a couple of uh, workers who were like cleaning up the, the ditches in front of their house. They lived in a development outside of Atlanta. And they looked sort of brown-skinned, and they thought, maybe they're Spanish. So the mother went out, very evangelistic family. The mother went out with some Spanish gospel tracts and greeted them in Spanish and tried to, you know, be friendly. And they tried to communicate that they didn't understand Spanish and they didn't understand English. And then they got across to the woman that they were from Syria. Yeah, Syria. And the woman just, Syria? She goes running back into her house, put the Spanish tracts away, put the Spanish New Testament away, get the Syrian literature that they, that, that, that they had kept in their home and go running out to these men. Now, can you imagine how amazing that is? You're a Syrian refugee working in America. You get a job cleaning up the ditches around these American homes. And this lady comes running out to you with the Bible and gospel tracts in your language? What is this? Well, they couldn't talk. So they did their best, you know, communicated, gave them the things, brought them a drink and whatever out of their house, and that was it. They went on their way, and it's like, okay, Lord, there was our Syrians. Now what? A few weeks later, somebody said to them, do you know that there's a suburb of Atlanta where all the Syrians are moving into? Well, Syrians? You see how God lays something on somebody's heart? Like, Syrians? So they went down to that suburb, and they just decided, we don't know anybody. You can't just bang on doors. So they just prayer walked prayer walked all afternoon, just walking the streets, and they could see the refugees around walking. As they were walking to their car to go home, no contact with anyone, 
one of those two men that were cleaning up the ditches outside their house saw them. Hey! Into the home, a big meal, if you know anything about Middle Eastern people, a big meal, invited other people over, meet my uncle, meet my cousin, meet my friends, and from there, just networking and opportunities. God wasn't going to send them to Syria. God was going to send Syria to them. Pray that God starts letting you cross paths with some Muslim people. He will. I want to do tonight a part one of a two-part message. Um, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, from my perspective, Paul is giving us an insight into why he's a missionary. Why am I a missionary? And it kind of sounds a little proud for me to say this is why I am a missionary. However, these are some of my most powerful motivational forces in my life. So they are a reason, the reasons why I am a missionary. But it's, I'd like us to think of it as Paul giving his reasons why he is a missionary. And both chapter 4 and chapter 5 each have multiple, multiple points of explanation for why Paul decided to give up his life to be a missionary. I realize that um, some of you have heard some of these things before, especially for my team alumni. May God give you the same grace to be filled with his word as I am, as I meditate on this over and over again. So we're going to do this evening, we're going to do 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and God willing, tomorrow we will do 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We want to draw about eight points of why Paul was a missionary from this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I think rather than just reading the entire chapter and then coming back, I will give you the points as we go. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we faint not. But having renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And we'll stop reading there for a moment. Verse 3 says, If our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And one of the things that I, I feel is a challenge to the American church when we look at the subject of missions is that we kind of only um, are able to vaguely understand what it means for lost people to be lost. Because we live fairly separate lives, because we live mostly out of town, mostly in rural areas, most of us stay within North America, we don't get a real... Um, a, a very strong picture or a very clear picture of what it means for the lost people to be lost. So I just spent 10 minutes trying to explain to you what it means for Muslims to reach out to a God that is absolutely not reaching out to them, at least in their understanding. 
I'm trying to picture for you just one dimension of what it means for the two billion people who are lost in Islam. Paul says, if our gospel is hid, the people that it's hidden from are the people that are lost. Maybe we need a little bit more contact with the down and outers in our society so that we have a little better picture of what it means to be lost. If our gospel is hid, it is hid to those that are lost. Verse 4 is a fascinating verse because it, it seems to me like, at least in some dimension, verse 4 highlights for us the fact that Satan respects the power of the gospel. It highlights for us that Satan respects the power of the gospel. And that should make you say, whoa, what do you mean Satan respects the gospel? Well, the Bible says in the book of James that the demons believe and even tremble. Well, here we are told that the God of this world purposely blinds the eyes and the minds of those who are lost, lest they would get a glimpse of the light of the gospel and would be saved. Satan is spending his efforts to make sure that none of the light of the gospel ever reaches the people who are lost, because if it does... Satan knows what happens. Does that make sense? So, and that's what I mean when I say Satan respects the power of the gospel. He recognizes that just a little bit of gospel light getting into these dark hearts will change them. If our gospel is hid, it's hid to those that are lost because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Lest some of that light would shine in their hearts. Please, for God's sake and for the sake of the lost, don't let Satan know more about the life-transforming power of the gospel than you do. Don't let him feel it more powerful than, than you recognize it to be powerful. He knows it's powerful, and so he spends all of his time trying to make sure, don't let any of that light get in there, because if just a little bit of that light gets in there and penetrates that darkness, that person will be changed. Well, if he's walking around trying to make sure none of that light gets in there, shouldn't we make it our passion to make sure some of that light gets in there? If he recognizes it's powerful, don't let any of it in, shouldn't we say, it's powerful, let's make sure some of it gets in? So why am I a missionary? Paul says, I'm a missionary because people that are without Christ are really lost. Really truly lost. A couple of months ago, one of the young men who lives in my home and calls me Papa came to me and said, my brother in the village is very, very sick. He's got some kind of a sickness which is in his leg and it is spreading through his body. And my father has tried to treat it, and my father is uh, going to the witch doctor to get medicine, and they're making sacrifices, and it's not getting better. Please let me bring my brother to your home, and let's go to the hospital and find out what's wrong with my brother. So here you have an unbelieving family, 
And then you have a young man who's come to faith in Christ and is being discipled in our home. And he says, I've got a brother still back in the village. My father's doing witchcraft. He's not getting better. Could we bring him out here? We can pray for him and send him to the hospital. So the young man came out. His brother came out to Tomalee. And when he described the sickness to me, from many years ago when I was studying tropical medicine, I thought, that sounds like filariasis, a tiny little fly that lays a worm that then goes up into the body and continues to um, run its life cycle inside the human body and will eventually result in blindness. But this young man is not yet blind. So we brought him to Tomali, took him to the hospital, and I mean, it didn't take them but two hours. They confirmed that he has filariasis, and if it's untreated, he will lose his sight. The treatment is very simple. He needs to take, I believe, four tablets of a specific medicine, following the life cycle of this worm inside his body. He needs to take four tablets of a specific medicine every year at a certain time for three years, and he'll be fine. The medicine costs like $2. So every year at a specific month, he has to come and get his $2 worth of medicine, take his tablets, wait till the next year, and after three years, he'll be fine. So we brought this young man into our home, and Christy and I sat down and tried to explain to him how serious the sickness was and how simple the cure was. You understand that? I mean, somehow I need him to understand you have a sickness that is going to make you go blind because I need him to be serious about taking this medicine. I need him to be a little bit frightened. I need him to realize, whoa, this thing on my leg, that's because the, 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 the worm went underneath my toenail typically and is now starting to spread through the body. I will lose my sight. I need him to understand how terrible the sickness is also need him to understand that you don't have to come out and go on IVs. You don't need an operation. You don't need anything expensive, but you just have to take this medicine. That's kind of how the lost are lost and how the gospel works. You have to sit somebody down and say, your sickness is going to send you to hell. You have a terrible sickness, but the cure is actually quite simple. Amen. Very simple. You just need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that that simple cure was purchased at great cost, but it's very simple. But the sickness is very serious. Wow. And there he was. And without one Christian in that family, he would have lost his sight. And that would have been that. And it happens all the time in Ghana. But because his brother was concerned about the witchcraft that his father was doing on his younger brother, brought him to Tomali, showed him the love of Christ, found out the sickness, now he's treating it. If our gospel is hid, it's hid from those that are lost. Why am I a missionary? Because the lost are really lost. We need to be convinced of that deeply in our hearts. We need to be convinced of it theologically, but also I would encourage you to interact with the lost people to where it becomes more than just a theological reality in my heart, but rather you look at them and say, these people are lost. I mean, they're really lost. Let's continue reading. Verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, 
hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Second reason why I'm a missionary, Paul says, is because God shined in me first. Isaiah chapter 60 says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and a gross darkness shall cover the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee. Here's the sunrise rising to shine on us. You guys living out here in the mountain, with the mountains, you really see that. You see how the sun comes up or goes down behind the mountains. There's just a moment where the light is there. But the light shall arise upon thee. His glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles will come to that light. Paul says, God who commanded the light to come out of the darkness, has shined on me. Why am I a missionary? Because God shined on me first. And I believe that God has already shined or shone on all of us. I believe that. Sometimes I don't think we quite make the connection that Him shining on me is meant to turn me into a source of light for other dark people. I was just preaching in, the, in our Bible school in Africa, and our men are at, at a very basic level in terms of reading. So I was trying to help them understand this. And I said, we as believers are not called to be suns. We are called to be moons. And I was trying to explain to them that the moon does not have a source of light within itself. I know you know this. The moon does not have a source of light within itself. It merely reflects the light that shines on it, like you and I. Paul says, God shone on me first. Why am I a missionary? Because God has already shined on my heart with a desire that he could give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on my life. I am simply supposed to reflect the light that he has already shined onto my heart. Thank God we're not asked to come up with our own light. Thank God that it's not, I have to come up with it. He says, we're not preaching ourselves. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if you were preaching yourself and your own goodness and how you've got it all together and you have to go out into a dark and sinful world and preach yourself? Paul says, we're not preaching ourselves. Mm -mm. We're not talking about a source of light which comes from within us. He has already shined on us. And so Paul says, second reason I'm a missionary is because God has already shown his light on me. And I'm just reflecting. I'm just reflecting. Moving on. Verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Let's go back to verse 7. 
We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is the treasure? What is the earthen vessel? Us. We are the clay pots. We are the earthen vessels. The treasure is this gospel light. The treasure is this reality that God is, is reaching out with desiring a relationship and that that's been accomplished through Christ's death on the cross. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel. Paul, why are you a missionary? I'm a missionary because God uniquely gets glory in this way. He says, we've got this treasure in a very earthen vessel, just a clay pot that the excellency of the glory would go back to God because it comes from him and it doesn't come from us. I think about six, eight weeks ago, my wife and daughter spent a week in one of our church villages and they wanted to learn a bunch of the old skills. Lily was with them. They spent a week in the village of Jinwu and one of the skills that they learned was how to make clay bowls. And it, it's really it's really an earthy process because you go out and find a, a riverbank that has uh, the right clay and you dig this clay out of the ground and you form it into a pot. And my wife and daughters now have this thing about eating out of the bowls that they made. There's just something really neat about making a, a pot that you can eat out of from the ground. But it is, after all, just an earthen vessel. And Paul says, God put this treasure in earthen vessels so that he will get the glory. Why are you a missionary? Because God gets a unique glory by shining this treasure of the gospel out of these very average and normal lives. We read through verse 11. Let's read um, verse 12. That's where we get our next point. Verse 12. So then, death worketh in us, but life works in you. Verse 11 says, we're always delivered unto death. We live a life that just means we're constantly being delivered to death. I want you to understand that this doesn't mean we die every day, although Paul does say that, but again, he means that figuratively. He's referring to the fact that the missionary life is a life of laying down yourself and your desires. It's a death. Now, we, we already spoke today Brother Caleb spoke about uh, the five missionaries who gave up their lives and were, were, were murdered. God may call you to that. He may not. But I promise you that he calls you to die daily in laying down yourself so that his power can work through you and so that the world can receive the gospel through your dying. So Paul says, we, we know a secret. Death works in us. Life works in you. That principle is just gospel truth. Death works in me, life works in you. When I'm laying down and dying so that others can receive the gospel, death is working in me, life is working in them. This has gotten to the point in my life as a missionary when I'm experiencing death, and obviously I'm still alive, so I don't mean actual dying, but sickness, pain, suffering, yielding, difficult circumstances. When death is working in me, I've started looking around. Where's the life? Where's the life? Lord, you promised when death works in me, life works in the people that I minister to. So where's the life? 
and I can't always find it, obviously, it's a mystery sometimes, but many times I can say, yep, this is the death working in me, and here's the anointing, here's the life, here's the people getting born again, here's the people's lives being changed. Death works in me, life works in them. And so Paul says, I'm a missionary because death in me brings life to others. We all would love to bring life to others. We do that by laying down our life. Paul, why are you a missionary? Verse 13, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. This is probably the simplest apologetic for missions you could ever come up with. Hopefully you're used to that word apology in that form is not saying I'm sorry for the gospel. It is an apologetic as in an explanation of why Paul is a missionary. He says, oh, you want to know why I'm a missionary? Let's just keep this real simple. I believe. And because I believe, I speak. Amen? Amen. Why are you a missionary, Paul? Well, well, because I believe. Now, something within us resists this super simple explanation because it doesn't take many brain cells to flip that around and say, if I'm not speaking, not sharing, not witnessing, does that mean I don't believe? (laughs) I'm not going to answer that question. But that's why we resist the very simplistic explanation that Paul says, the reason why I'm a missionary is because I believe. And we could talk about what he believes. There's lots of things he believes, but he believes the gospel. And because he believes it, he speaks. I know you believe it. I wish that in this weekend, you would believe it like never before. Because the more you believe it, the more you believe its power, the more you believe the world needs it, the more you believe the lost are really lost, the more you believe you have the medicine to cure that sickness, the more nobody's going to be able to stop you. Nobody. You believe, therefore you speak. Jeremiah says, I decided I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to speak in his name any longer. I'm going to stop talking. Jeremiah says, and Jeremiah says uh, in verse chapter 20 and verse 9, he says, when I decided to stop talking, your word was like a fire closed up in my bones. You ladies know pressure canners, amazing things. Pressure canner inside your bones is what Jeremiah is describing. He said, I decided I'm not going to talk here. I'm not going to speak in God's name anymore. This is getting me into too much trouble. I'm just going to be quiet. He says, when I decided to be quiet, the pressure started building up in my bones. I had to talk. Paul says, I believe. That's why I'm speaking. I'm not telling you you don't believe. Maybe you need to believe more. What a simple explanation. Paul, why are you doing what you're doing? I believe. Jesus' parents met him beginning to do God's work back there in the, te- in the, the temple. He said, Jesus, why are you doing this? He looked at them incredulous. You didn't think that I would be doing my father's business? It's that same sort of a simple explanation, I, I, I believe. So, of course I'm going to do it. You know, when you believe in a product that you sell, you're a good salesman or saleswoman for that product. Because you believe. Nobody can keep you quiet. But if the product that you're selling hasn't done anything for you, you're going to have to really work on making up a convincing speech. Right? 
But if it's changed your life, you're not going to sit down and say, oh, I have to tell four people today. Everybody you meet, you're going to say, hey, can I tell you about Plexus or Shackley or I don't know what your other ones are anymore right now. But if it's changed your life, if you lost 100 pounds on Plexus, that was a really big thing a while ago. I don't even know if it exists anymore. If you lost 100 pounds on Plexus, every person who sees you and says, whoa, you're looking good, what are you going to say? Plexus! <laughs> because it worked for you. Nobody, they're not going to have to sign you up. They're not going to have to give you a discount. They're not going to have to give you a trip to Bermuda if you sell it. Every person who says, what happened to you? You're going to say, Plexus, I believe. And I speak. Oh, surely Plexus doesn't have a better motivational structure than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Surely it's not more life-changing than what the gospel does for us. I know I've lost 100 pounds of sin through the gospel, and you would not like how I would look if I hadn't. Right? I know we have to make these connections in our minds and say, yeah, that's right. None of us would like how we would look if, if not that we've encountered Christ. Paul says, I believe. That's why I'm speaking. Amen. We're moving on. So he says, I believe and I speak. Now verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because I have a desire to be presented along with you. Now, this is not the only verse in the New Testament where this idea is communicated. So if, if you're questioning this theology, come talk to me. We can chat about it afterwards. But Paul says, I desire to be resurrected. I believe that the same spirit who resurrected Jesus is going to resurrect me along with you and present us together. That word present the picture is like in front of a king where someone brings you in and says, I present to you the king of England, I present to you, and then your name. Paul says, I'm a missionary because I know that the same spirits that raised up Jesus is also going to raise me up and he's going to raise you up and he's going to present us along with you. At the very least... It means, Paul Paul's is communicating that he wants to be in heaven with the people that he's led to Christ. I don't, I don't know what you believe about heaven. I have had, I've met people who say, I don't think we're going to know the people that we led to Christ in heaven. I think we are because we're going to know everything that we could know. We're going to know as we are known. The mysteries are going to be released, released, um, removed from us. I believe that we will know. Paul says... I want to be presented in front of Christ with you. Now, if I have it wrong, I promise you I will not be disappointed. No believer gets to heaven and is disappointed. Amen? Amen. No believer gets to heaven and is like, oh, I wasn't the way I thought it was going to be. What a letdown. No, okay? That will not happen on the authority of God's word. That will not happen. 
So if I have dreamed something that excites me and makes me pour out my life for people and I get to heaven and it's slightly different, that's perfectly fine. But the way I picture it, I picture it that the Lord Jesus will allow me to stand along with the people that I've brought to Christ. Can you imagine? Maybe you'll be there with your children. Maybe you'll be there with some tribe. Maybe you will be there with people that you don't even know that your life had an impact on. That will be glorious. In the last three months, my Uncle Don, my great Uncle Don, and my great Aunt Pearl, husband and wife, passed away. Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl are the fundamental Baptist aunt and uncle who led my drug addict father to Christ. Some of you don't know my father's story. They were the aunt and uncle who my father turned to when as an atheist, marijuana-smoking druggie, he said, I've got to figure out if there's a God. And he went to Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl because every family gathering, they were there shoving the Bible down his throat. They were, I mean, wow. They would put all of us to shame. Maybe too much. But you know what? When he wanted to find out if there was a God, he knew who to turn to. He went to Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl's house, knocked on Aunt Pearl's door and said, Aunt Pearl, I've decided to go hide in a hotel room until I figure out if there's a God. My mind, I'm being driven crazy by this question of whether there's a God. Do you have a book that I could read? She said, do I have a book that you could read? And she gave him her very own Bible. My father, I think, was back out of that hotel in less than 24 hours, thoroughly born again. My great aunt and uncle outlived my father. They passed away. One died like three months ago, and the other one died two weeks ago, Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl. They've spent their entire lives in death ministry. They have deaf spiritual children all over the Midwest, from Missouri to Nebraska was their area. Lots of deaf. They pastored in hearing churches, they would pastor the deaf people in the church. When my father passed away in 2012, Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl were given a place of honor in the funeral. My father came to Christ. He went into the Baptist church because he was so caught up with the Bible. They said, you need to go to Bible college. And so we went off to Bible school and I was born in the Baptist church. A few years later, we left the Baptist church and from their perspective, we became Amish. And, you know, it's kind of like, we don't know what Denny's doing out there, but they knew that my father continued to walk with God. But at the funeral in 2012, they stood up there in the Ephrata building on the platform, and everyone knew them. When they walked around that building, were, 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 were Denny's Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl. People were like, oh, the ones that led him to Christ? You're Uncle Don and Aunt Pearl? You're the one who gave him the Bible? You're the one who helped Denny and Jackie get married? You're the ones who sent them to Bible school. And they were kind of like, whoa, how does everybody know about us? They stood up on that platform at the effort of building for my father's funeral. There were about 100 pastors sitting in the front rows and like 1,500 people in that funeral. And they stood there with their mouths open. So we had no idea. You know, when I was watching that, you know what I thought? They got heaven on earth. 
Now, they're going to get to heaven and find out many more heavens that they did. I mean, many more such moments that they couldn't have known about. But they got to experience heaven on earth. They got to come and see the fruit of their outreach. And they stood there on the platform and just were stunned. Like, all these people know us? These are people that Brother Denny pastored or Brother Denny trained or Brother Denny influenced. All these people are here to honor the man, the hippie that we led to Christ. Yes, Paul says, I believe that the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead is going to raise me from the dead. He's going to raise you from the dead and is going to present us together. That's the picture. They got to experience that on earth. Some of us aren't going to know till we get to heaven, but I can't wait. Amen? I can't wait to be presented alongside of the people that by God's grace I've been able to, to help and bring to heaven. That's verse 14. Verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because more souls saved equals more glory for God. He says, through the praises of many, more glory is going to come back to my Creator. You know the song that says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Basically, that's what Paul says. Paul says, I'm getting my thousand tongues. I mean, you can sing all your life, I wish I had more tongues with which to praise my Jesus. Or you can go out and decide, I'm going to stop wishing I had more tongues, and I'm going to go out and get some more tongues. Amen? When you bring someone out of a sinful relationship, estranged from their creator, back into a right relationship with your creator, and they start worshiping God, those people are helping you to praise your creator. I can't communicate to you how exciting it is to me. Sometimes on a Sunday morning in Ghana, when I just think I'm sitting in my office and I'm getting ready to preach, and I realize that all across the Konkomba villages, little church services are starting. And they always start by what? Just like you do, singing praises in villages where there were no believers. All over this county that I minister in, there are little services getting started and Jesus is being praised by all these tongues that God helped me to bring to Him. Amen? Paul says, everything is for you because I want to get as many people as I can possibly get to join me so that through the praise of many, glory will go back to God. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because I'd like some other people to help me praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues. So I don't know if I can get a thousand. Okay, get 10. Okay, get 10. Just say, God, I am going to pray and work and look and, and experiment and try. I'm not going to go to heaven by myself. I'm going to have 10 people to join me. Paul says, through the praises of many, glory is going to come back to God. We're almost finished here. That is verse 15. Verse 16, for which cause we faint not. Did Paul have reason to faint? 
You read those verses, verse 8 and 9? Wow. Paul had a difficult, difficult life. He says, because of this, because of this, praise going back to God through the tongues of many people who are coming to believe in this gospel. For this cause, we faint not. Do you know how tired you get in a specific task is very much related to how much you believe in it and how much uh, you can see it working? I know we all know that. There are jobs, there are days where you work like a dog and you make no progress and you are just so incredibly weary. There are other days where you seem to put in the same effort, but the day goes so well, you end in the evening pumped, at least for us guys. I'm not sure exactly how you ladies are wired, but at least for us guys, there are days where you are, you are just, your soul is weary of the effort you've put in with your body all day long because you weren't successful. And then other days, you work so hard, but you come home just, yes! Paul says, we don't faint. This is the reason why we don't faint. They're beating up on us. They're stoning us. They're trying to drown us. They're tying chains around my feet. I'm having to escape. I'm being mocked everywhere I go. I don't faint. Why? Because though my outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. How can your inward man be renewed day by day while your outward man is being pelted with stones and being chained to walls and being beaten up in various places? How can that happen? Because we're looking at things differently. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Look at all those words that get added there. This light affliction is working for us something so amazing that we don't faint. So that's when you come home and say, hey, we're pumped. We made so much progress today. Paul says, I don't faint because I realize these difficulties I'm walking through are just going to last for a moment. And this moment of difficulty is working out an eternal weight of glory. Is there anyone here that has an NLT Bible? I realize that's not a common version. Does anyone here have an NLT? You have it with you? You have it with you right now? Could you read verse 16, 17, and 18? in the NLT. I, I think in the King James, but the NLT on these three verses is stunning. 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17, and 18. Second Corinthians 5. Four. Sorry, I'm sorry, 4. I'm looking at 5. That's the next chapter. My, my bad. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, and 18. Has one of you got it? Yeah, hold on. Thank you. 16. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Can you read verse the beginning of verse 17 again? For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. That's great. 
our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Oh, yes. I'm not always there. But that would be a really, good, a really good place to stay in our hearts when we're suffering for Christ. Say, oh, these present troubles are small and they're not going to last very long. But they're working out a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because I believe in this exceeding great reward that comes from this suffering of this period that I'm walking through. How can you say that, Paul? These troubles are just lasting for a moment. It, took, it was longer than that when they beat up on you. It was longer than that when you had to recover from that stoning. See, it's just for a moment. It won't last very long. The reason Paul was able to say that is because he says, I'm looking, in verse 18, I'm looking at the things which cannot be seen. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because I believe in the eternal weight of glory. And I believe that that is going to make all of this just look like a moment. We've looked at, I believe, eight points here in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians as to why Paul was a missionary. This is my closing thought for you. I'd like you to carry this tonight and tomorrow. Sometimes when we talk about missions, it looks like we're adding a burden on people, on people who are already busy and burdened and thinking about many things that they should be doing. And now someone comes and says, oh, by the way, here, let me put another load on your back. The whole world is dying without Christ and you need to do something about it. It's like, what a burden. And I don't know that the pastors here would get up and say that tonight, but do you know how many churches I have preached what to me is an exciting message on the subject of missions and had a pastor or a church leader get up and say, wow, Brother Daniel, whew, that's a burden. Yeah, we should be doing more. And it's like, okay, yeah, yes, we should be doing more. But my goal is not to put a burden on any of us. If you can't tell I get excited about some of this, if you can't tell, let me know so I can really let it show tomorrow, <laughs> okay? I'm trying to stay within, you know, some kind of boundaries here. I don't think they want me running up and down on this stage. I'm excited about this, okay? Understand that in, in, in different spheres of, of this world that we live in, there are people who exercise because they have to exercise, okay? Their doctor tells them you have to exercise. But there are people who really love exercise. So when they're telling you about exercise, they're excited about it. You can, oh, it clears your mind. I mean, that burn in your legs after you've been running and it improves your health and you breathe better and wow! If your response is, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be exercising. Oh, well, I wasn't trying to tell you what you have to do. I'm trying to say this right here that we've just read is a privilege. It's exciting. It's amazing. 
I was in missions conference in Pennsylvania. I'll close with this little story. Last weekend, and they had a, a, a period in the afternoon where they were letting people who are involved in local ministry, not foreign ministry, local ministry people get up and give their stories. And there's a, an older um, single man there at the charity church who is semi-retired. And when he prayed about how he, as a, I'm using his words, how he as an introvert could become active in sharing his faith, he said, God put a burden on his heart to buy a hearse and decorate this hearse with Bible verses and like do the inside like a motor home and travel around and park in places where people can see it and sit beside it and offer to pray for people and give out gospel messages and things. And so he is retired, semi-retired now and has this hearse and he Point, puts it in all these places and he just told story after story because people see it and come up to him and he gets to pray for them and and they share their troubles with him and he just has all these lovely stories and he said you know this car is so unique he said there are been multiple times i've come out and there's been money like slid in the the, the windshield wiper or a letter of thanks from someone, or a note of encouragement, or a prayer request just put under the wiper as it's sitting beside the road. He said, how many of you folks that drive normal cars ever have that happen to you? <laughs> of course, nobody. I mean, a Toyota Camry sitting in the Walmart parking lot, nobody's going to say, oh, look at that car. Let me give them a note of encouragement. <laughs> but a hearse with Bible verses painted all over it brings a reaction. I'm sure he probably also gets some angry people. And then this man, who's probably about 70 years old, he said, so none of you have ever had this done in your car? He said, well, it happens to me quite regular. It's really cool. <laughs> I love that line, because a 70-year-old man saying that is a little bit cute. But I love the line because what he communicated was like, you all ought to get in on what I'm in on. And I really believe that. So I'd like us this weekend, as much as possible, while we may be burdened when we talk about the Muslims and the people without Christ and the unreached tribes here and there, while that should burden our hearts because they need Jesus, I would like for us to connect with our involvement in a positive way and say, that's amazing. That's an opportunity. I want to get in on that. I want to be in heaven with my group. I want people standing there with me. Amen? God bless you. We'll look forward to part two uh, tomorrow, and that comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God bless you.